1: Today, I am talking with Monica A. Coleman, author of Bipolar Faith, Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith. Her book is both a spiritual autobiography and a memoir of mental illness. Writing in gripping fashion, Coleman examines the ways that the legacies of slavery, war, sharecropping, poverty, and alcoholism mask a family's history of mental illness. Those same forces accompanied her into the Black religious traditions and Christian ministry. All the while, she wrestled with her own bipolar disorder. In her powerful book, Coleman shares her lifelong dance with trauma, depression, and the threat of death. She offers a rare account of how the modulated highs of Bipolar two can lead to professional success while hiding a depression that even her doctors rarely believed. Only as she was able to face her illness was she able to live faithfully with bipolar disorder. Monica A. Coleman teaches theology and African American religions at Claremont School of Theology. She also coordinates their Center for Process Studies. Her writings cover womanist theology, sexual abuse, and the African-American experience. She is an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, as well as a sought-after speaker and preacher. For more information, visit her site at monicaacoleman.com. Okay. Thank you for being here today.
2: I'm really happy to have you. It's good to be here, thank you for thinking of me and welcoming me in Bipolar Faith.
1: Maybe you could get us started by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
2: Um, my name is Monica A. Coleman and by day, I'm a professor and a religious leader, um, but I've always been a writer too. You know, In fact, I've recently found things I wrote in fourth grade or fifth grade. I was kind of a kid who took to writing to express what was I was feeling and what was going on. So I think of myself also as a writer, even though it's not, as you would say, my day job. And I think I've always felt there's a story I wanted to write. So I recall many years ago, I would say maybe early 2000s, I went to a career panel where we were supposed to ta- learn about Um, kind of coming into our careers and learning to manage our time and balance work and life. And the person leading the panel asked a very common question, which is, um, if you died tomorrow, what would be the one thing left undone, something you wish you had done? And many people said, oh, I wish I'd spend more time with my family, or, oh, I wish I had, you know, reconciled places where there were rifts in my life. And I was like, no, I spend enough time with my family and I don't think I have any big holes there, but I would be upset that I hadn't written this book. And I so I felt like there was a story I hadn't told yet that really I wanted to tell and it needed to be told, even if it was just for me. And so I've started very slowly to work on this book. And as often happens, a book kind of runs away from you, or you think you know what you're going to write about, and you have an outline, and it takes you a different direction. So I did not know that I was writing a book about mental health, as funny as that sounds. I thought, I'm writing kind of my Black girl coming of age story. And as I was writing it, I realized this was a story that needed to be told, or the story that I needed to share, of what it was like to lose faith and find it again, what it was like to wrestle with this mental health challenge of I wanted to share a little bit of what it felt like and how I reflected on what it felt like um, to live with bipolar 2. And it was also because I couldn't find my story anywhere. Um, I was looking for memoirs. I love to read memoirs. And I was looking for stories of, that would tell me I wasn't by myself and that I wasn't alone. And I just couldn't find them yes, there are what we kind of call memoirs of madness, right? <laughs> or these memoirs about depression and um, like Kay Redfield Jameson's Unquiet Mind. And I read uh, Mary Donkwa's Willow Weep for Me. And I loved reading them. Right. I mean, I read a whole series of them. I think I mentioned them in Bipolar Faith. But um, what was missing was that they weren't written. They didn't sound like my life. <laughs> they weren't, written, none of them were written by African-Americans. And so all that my culture brings to my life was just missing. And nobody talked about faith and how this kind of invisible, intimate, deep suffering affects how you feel about God and religion. And I was like looking for it, looking for it, and I couldn't find it. So that was a lot of the story that happened. I think the biggest surprise was I did not expect for the story of sexual violence to take as big a part (laughs) as it did. Um That really shocked me, and I wasn't really comfortable with it. That's not how I wanted it to go, um, but it turned out it was in that crucible of suffering where I began um, to gather some of the skills that would let me emerge and live with other experiences of suffering and other depressions. Um, and so I was like, "Oh, here we go, telling the story." <laughs> um, so that's really kind of how it came to be, and I just kind of kept writing it and rearranging pieces and. Um, finally worked with an editor, of course, at certain points just to make it cohere. I'm more of an essayist, so writing one long narrative um was hard and clunky <laughs> at times. And it I don't think I thought it would it was decent until right before it went to press. I kept thinking like, oh, this is missing, or oh, I'm not sure if this works, or oh, does it really explain what I'm thinking of? Um And then I was like, oh, I think this might not be so bad, which is good because it was really going to press. (laughs) And I would say the last part was I wanted to push back against this very medical model narrative that exists um, in terms of those commercials that come on where, you know, everything is kind of dark and dreary and sad music. And then usually a woman takes a pill and then they're running through daisies, right? In the next scene. In um, this idea that we all, that mental health challenges are caused by a chemical imbalance, and you take this pill and you're better, and I'm like, it's not that I'm anti medicine, but it's so not that simple. <laughs> and I wanted to really complexify the story and talk about the ways in which poverty and war and trauma and addiction and abuse are all apart (laughs) would lead to what we might now call depressive conditions or mental health challenges and brain chemistry maybe, but all those things are part of us, our experiences and our our cells, right? Um and so I wanted to say like this is really more complicated than those kind of commercials lead you to believe. And we should remember that and we should think about that. (laughs) um, Because that means we have to be more complex in our treatment and more complex in our solutions. Um, And for me, that was very much an African-American story and very much an American story um, that comes from at least my experiences and that feel very Southern in many ways and very Midwestern in many ways. And I wanted to share that. Yeah, you're just making
1: some good points and you actually talk in the book about when you are starting to seek some support and help how you had to fill out these checklists of like symptoms. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, yes, they'll say like, are you having difficulty sleeping? Have you had a loss of appetite? And you, you're kind of funny at that point because you get so sick of, of these checklists that you, you do a very creative thing and just write your own little summary of how, what you've been experiencing and how you want to be treated. But when you when you talk about the the medical approach, you're you're helping me realize like they don't ask like, so have you had trauma? They don't ask like, have you ever been assaulted? They don't ask, like, you know, what's your personal family's history with being oppressed or discriminated? And why aren't we asking that? I mean, that it's less medical in the sense that it's there's not like a physical thing that they can assess, but that's really a, a really good point. And that's what's really nice about this book is readers will start thinking much more broadly about, about all of it, um, about diagnosis and treatment and and even the recognition and understanding. Um, yes, I don't know. I, wanna, I was going to say that you could maybe say something about your experience of how you how you wanted to be treated in the process of identifying something that was going to be sort of medicalized because that you do that really nicely, just sort of saying, okay, if I'm going to consider a medication or get medical treatment, this is I don't want to then not be a person anymore or."
2: Right. And right, I had this real contentious relationship with the medical industry at the point when I really needed medical help. And some of that just came from a a misdiagnosis. Like I had bronchitis and I thought I had the flu. I mean, like something super small, but being given the wrong medication threw my body into this really deep sickness. So I was not really feeling (laughs) medication I wasn't really feeling doctors I was like I don't trust you all you all almost killed me and so um I was like oh man now I need to go (laughs) get some medication probably to get some help and I don't think these people know what they're doing (laughs) and so which is probably not true clearly of every doctor but I just had this very negative experience um you know in addition and I came to learn this with the psychiatrist I worked with when she was very direct and saying you know When they tell you here's a therapeutic level, they usually are testing this on white men's bodies. You're not white or male. So, you know, we really have to adjust these things. But I was very um, skeptical and very wary and probably a little bit afraid of taking psychotropic medication. So I did do a little research. And by the time I ended up at the last psychiatrist that where things went well, um, yeah, I had the statement saying like, okay, check, check, check. No, I don't sleep. No, I don't eat. No, I don't whatever. All the symptoms. Um, but that didn't really say how I was feeling. So I had this six-page document of like, here's how I'm feeling. Here's what's going on. Can you help? Um, and I just felt very desperate. I was like, please, you've got to help me. Like, I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I looked terrible. I couldn't keep my job. Um, and, but I wanted to be better, right? So I did want help. And I said, okay, but here's the thing. (laughs) I've looked up these medications and one of them is like, it's going to kill my sex drive. It's not about whether or not I have sex, but I feel like I should want to have sex, right? (laughs) And one of these is going to make me gain weight. And I'm pretty much sure if I gain weight, I'm not going to feel good about myself either. So that would cause a problem. So what's left? (laughs) Um, in medications, they've got money more than they did at the time. But she's like, well, that takes out two whole classes of medications. <laughs> so yeah. you're left with a couple. And I was like, okay, let's try those. Um, and it turned out that the first thing I tried at this tiny, tiny micro dose, she's like split it in half and then split it in half again. Um, I slept and I was like, oh, this is great. It's like magic. It's wonderful. You've healed me. Um, I mean, I just wanted to sleep even. And we really worked the dosage very slowly so that I could become comfortable with it too, right? I'm sure she knew it needed to be higher, but she knew that I needed to trust her and trust the medication um, and that that was gonna be a slower process for me. And I really appreciate that. And she never acted like it was going to be a cure-all, you know, like this is one part of how we're going to help you to get better. And having that kind of a good experience really helped a lot. So I could, again, feel like I was being treated like a whole person who was sick not just somebody you just dose out medication to. Right. There's the writer in you when you when you say you could have always
1: were a writer. I was like, who shows up and has the book? You're like, she goes, do you want me to read this? And you're like, yep. And she's like, right now? And you're like, yep. <laughs> that's a really, that's a, there's, there's a lot of really in the midst of this serious book, there's a lot of little sweet vignettes in that sort of sense where you're, you know, your personality really kind of comes through. It's kind of cute. Um, what about, so that's sort of your experience and your um, sort of being wary of the medical profession. I don't know if you'd like to say something about your efforts also to reach out to um, people uh, to different um, reverends or ministers or whatever and that experience because that 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 was
2: you know tough too. Yeah, you know, I think in hindsight, I can say finding a mentor, finding a pastor, finding a doctor is kind of like going on a bunch of bad first dates, right? And you gotta just kiss a lot of frogs to get to the prince. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really have all that time. <laughs> Right to go on bad first dates. Um, And definitely when you don't think that's what's going to happen. But like I said, in hindsight, I kind of think that because I did have that experience um, looking for ministers who would be understanding about sexual violence. And I was really blessed to have gotten access to good counseling um, through the work of rape crisis centers. Um, So I was like, okay, I'm in counseling. I'm in group. I can... I have a name for what I'm experiencing, which didn't mean I wasn't experiencing, but I could name it, um, which made a big difference. And I knew other people who were also experiencing the trauma that comes from being raped or being sexually violated in some way. But I was trying to figure out where to go to church while I was still in the, the midst, in the depth of this traumatic response. And I would talk to different ministers and got these horrible responses. Um, some just kind of looked over my head and watched the game. Some were like, "Depression, the tool of the enemy, cast it out in the name of Jesus." I'm like, "Oh, because I didn't try that." I mean, come on, it doesn't work that way, right? Or another, um, you know, was kind of almost accusing me of being of, t- of being a part of my victimization and sort of like why was he in your apartment those right right what were you wearing what was he doing there and I'm like you're allowed to have people you know in your house and not think they're going to rape you like and I had you know I mean but you start to be like right is that okay like it's, it's it's gaslighting it makes you feel like you're crazy in a way um and this is what rape culture is in many ways this is um, it's not like church culture is exempt from this wider society that either blames victims for it or just is kind of pervasive with misogyny and patriarchy. Um, and some of these things have gotten better. And some of them I came to realize were because the people I was talking to were themselves victims and they had not really processed or dealt with their own experiences. Um, in ways that were healthy. So there was no way they could help me if they were still really managing their own. Um, so even though I understood that, I didn't want to go there. <laughs> I didn't want to go to that church or or work under those ministers. Um, and so that those were, that was a really tough process. And I often say, if I had not been required by my educational institution to find a church to intern in, I probably would have left. I probably would have left faith altogether. Um, But I didn't really have anything else to do. (laughs) I didn't have another plan B. And I had a fellowship to go to college, to go to school. So I was like, well, we have to do this. And we're going to do this. And this is what I have to do. So I kept looking. And that requirement, I think, in many ways, is what kept me in the journey. um, Until I really did find a great minister who understood, you know, how to just be present and not ask a lot of those of us who are survivors. Mm. Yeah, that story or that that part of
1: the book really kind of parallels when you decide that you're going to report the the rape as well, and mm-hmm. your sort of experience with the police. And when I was reading the your experience with the police, that's a much more familiar story. Like, I mean, I think women know. Um, a lot of us know. Like you're going to get questioned and there's a lot of that but it was really interesting for me to hear that you went to so many different um, people trying to uh trying to tell your story and find a church where you could feel comfortable with that story um but just you know i i think that's interesting and i'm when i'm hearing you say that i'm wondering if because in fact like you said many of them there's the long history of abuse and if they never had someone to go to to help them,
2: then it's, it's a real dilemma, right? Right. I mean, so many people sometimes are survivors. And other times people, I, mean, I I have so many clergy friends, of course, that nobody really has a bad heart. It's like thinking, how can I be hurtful? Some people are selfish, yes. But the vast majority of people are, aren't trying to be hurtful, but they literally are not trained um, either in terms of our our beliefs or in terms of our words in our pastoral care, what to do with people who are sitting in front of you with this deep pain.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: So I had, I had asked you before we recorded if it was okay to ask you about what it was like to write about friends and family in the book. So now that we're talking about, you know, like Reverend Ed, where you sort of referenced he was the, the person you finally connected with um what was that what was that like for you did you have people reading parts of it or did you
2: have to ask permission or what was that like yeah exactly for the most kind of uh, the controversial parts you know i did ask permission um you know like Reverend Ed, i didn't ask I'm like i'm always saying great things about you you'll be fine right but for some people i did i gave them like the section that i had written about them and, you know, I had some really, really amazing responses that surprised me. Um, a couple, you know, we talked together about how, what I was going to change their name to. <laughs> um, like, what name do you want me to use? Yeah. Um, but most, I used their real names, and they were okay with that. And I remember one person saying, you know, I remember this really clearly. And it was a really hard time of my life, but this part that you're writing about, was a good part. And I'm really, I didn't even know that this is what this meant to you. Uh, or I didn't know you were thinking this. Or, wow, that is what it was like. And nobody's ever talked about it. Right? So if you remember the story with, um I talk about the high school boyfriend I had who had cut his wrist and attempted suicide. And when I shared that with him, who was not easy to find, <laughs> um he said, no one in my family has ever talked about this since, but that was, I remember this, and this is exactly what it was like. And I was so hurt for him that no one's ever talked with him about it again Um, after it happened, right? That's terrible in some ways, but I was also like, oh, I got it right. This was how I remember it. This is how you remember it. Um, And he was really moved by that. So there were really nice places like that. And when I asked people, I think I only had one person who wanted me to change the details in such a significant way um, that they couldn't be identified. And, of course, the person who violated me, I changed the name, but that was it, because I didn't think I owed that person anything more than that. Um, But I think with my family, on the other hand, no, I did not ask for permission because I'm like, yeah, you're family. You can't shake me if you're mad. Um, And it's part of my family's story. And so the vast majority of my family was like, who knows the story? was like, yes, that, this is what happened, right? But we didn't know how you felt about it. Um, other parts of my family, like who weren't on my mother's mother's side, were learning the story and were like, oh, okay. Um, so the vast majority of my family liked it. They came to book signings. They bought the book. And they, you know, posted on social media about it. Um, but there were some who did not like what I wrote. And, you know, we had some words about it. And what I can at least say is that I, when I was writing it, I did, what I learned, I guess, I, the most in writing is that in my head, there are good guys and bad guys, right? Like, and I'm, of course, one of the good guys. <laughs> but in writing it, I realized there are no heroes and there are no villains. Like, everybody's trying to do the best they can with what they have. And some generations just didn't have a whole lot to work with. And I tried to tell it that way, like, here are great things about this person. And here were some not so great things about this person. Or here are some great things about this generation. And here are some places they really lacked or really didn't come through. And so I didn't feel bad about how I represented anybody or anything. Um, But some parts weren't nice. And so there are parts of my family who were not happy about that no one said we think you're lying. They just said it wasn't nice. And I'm like, well, you're right, it wasn't nice. And so um, it was that wonderful Anne Lamont quote, right? If you wanted me to write nicer things, you should have been better to me or something. I'm paraphrasing it. She says it much better. But I was like, yeah, that. And so, um, but the vast majority of my family felt okay, you know, or supportive of what I was writing about. Because
1: you also write in the book about wanting to be understood, and times when um, you you talk about your relationship with your mom, and times when your mom was really there for you and supportive, and you know I mean? and then then when you actually did report it, her having a harder time with that, which is common too. But you know, no one person can be
2: all understanding all the time too. I mean, that's same same idea. Right. And, you know, we had worked through all these things by the time I had written the book. So when she read it, she liked she was fine, you know. And I think I worried most about her response. I think I probably did because, you know, as a parent, I get how hard it is to know your child is in pain Mm -hmm. and not be able to fix it. Like I can't even imagine. And so I didn't want her to be sad that I was sad and she couldn't fix it. Um, but by the time we wrote the book and by the time she read it, it was like we were okay. Everything was okay. But that's the part, like, I didn't want her to be sad about me being sad. Mm-hmm.
1: There's also your relationship with your dad, which you go into mm-hmm. in the book, too. And and that's why the book's very rich in that it deals with this rape that you have. But it also deals with, you know, growing up in a household where, you know, there is domestic violence mm-hmm. and mean there's there's all kinds of challenges that you really do address. Um, So I just, I wonder what, Mm -hmm. what was it like dealing with your dad in terms of telling this story?
2: Well, my dad had passed away by before the book came out. So I'm sure that helped a little bit. But I think I would have told it anyway, (laughs) Um, because like I said, it had to be told. And these were things that I had talked to him about before we weren't on the same page about them, <laughs> but it wasn't like I had never said any of this before um, to him. We just didn't see eye to eye um, about what had happened in through my childhood, which I can understand. I don't think he saw it or experienced it the way I did or the, the way my mother did. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was really empowering and important to give another face to domestic violence, right? There is I don't know if it's because of Lifetime movies or what we see on TV, but there is this idea that domestic violence goes hand in hand with a kind of poverty. And we, we were solidly middle class, right? It was the kind of thing that nobody would have believed um, from the outside because of the kind of jobs my parents had, the kind of education they had, the kind of um, schools that I went to, all those things um and i wanted to be like that doesn't mean that people aren't scared in their own homes right and that doesn't shape you know who we are and how we grow and develop and see the world um and for me it really affected my faith because you know and i really think it also shapes you know from what i understand about you know um trauma and um, epigenetics, right? This, this kind of thing shapes, literally shapes who we are in our bodies, and our genes. And I wanted to say, well, maybe this, this is a factor too, right? You can't isolate. it's oh, kind of what I wanted to pull out. Like it wasn't this, it was this, it was that, not that. That all these things make up who we are. And so that was part of the story to tell because that was such a big part of my childhood and a part that many people didn't know about. A um, part that was very quiet for my mom and for me. Um, And so some of that was also, you know, getting your own voice, right? And sharing that and being empowered to say, this is what happened. Um, And then to think, well, you know, my dad did better than his dad, right? His dad wasn't really even present. He was present. My dad grew up hungry. I was never hungry. You know, so there are so many things that my dad did that were better than he inherited. But then there were still ways in which he really could not be all of who he needed to be too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and you you struggle with a lot of that and you share the process in the book. How much was therapy a part of you being able to reflect and see your dad in a but in a bigger picture?
2: Therapy is like gold, right? <laughs> I would say people have often asked me if writing it was therapeutic. Like, no, writing it was hard. It was writing, right? <laughs> but I had but the therapy that happened before the writing, you know, it was is amazing. I've actually in the process had some pretty good therapists and I knew even probably from when I went to college, once I was able to leave home, that this was something I was going to have to figure out. Like my relationship with my father was a big thing to me Mm -hmm. Um, for various reasons. But I knew that like I was going to have to get through, you know, the anger and the fear and all these different emotions that they weren't healthy for me. And I had to figure out if I was going to continue to have a relationship with him. And therapists helped a lot with that. Um I guess age and maturity helps a lot too in terms of really being able to step back and look at his parents and their parents and kind of piece together what I knew. Um because my parents grew up together, my mom could tell me a lot about my father's side of the family. Um but it's interesting when I speak at colleges to people who are in their 20s, they always ask about, "Well, how did things end with your dad?" <laughs> and you know, my dad and I, before he passed away, we ended on good terms, which was something I never expected. Like, I expected we would be polite and cordial. <laughs> that was, I think, my expectation, um, that I would really have some very solid, high boundaries, um, not kick him out of my life, even though that was always an option if that needed to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not anticipate that it would be warm. And in the last year or so of my father's life, you know, there was just a lot of grace that we experienced. Um, And I guess I call it grace because I didn't expect it and I didn't need it. You know, I was at peace with my history, with who he was, with who I was. I didn't need anything more from him. I wasn't angry with him. And I was fine, like I could have lived there. (laughs) And so to actually receive kind of warmth and, you know, relationship and, you know, a couple fun times even after that, I consider that all extra, right? All all grace, all things that I didn't think would be there. Were there apologies? No, that wasn't going to happen, but I wasn't expecting it, right? I didn't need it. Um, and so it really was therapy um, that really helped me. Lots of therapists, right? <laughs> I think at different times to, to kind of go through that. And I think a lot of it, and this was kind of the faith I had, I thought that if you were angry with somebody or you hated somebody or you had very high boundaries that it was a sign of bad faith. Like I wasn't being a good Christian. I wasn't being a good person of faith. And there was something wrong with me. And it really took therapists to be like, no, that's not, that's not true. Um, And me working through my own faith to say, wait, wait a minute, this is not the kind of faith I want to have now that I really think about it. And God knows that you're human. Right. You know, and that you're one going to mess up, but being angry about being hurt is not a sin. That's a human response, a natural response, a response you should have. And so, you know, that's why I became so committed career wise to really offering a different way of thinking about faith to people so that they wouldn't have that same narrative in their minds that I did. Right. I I think you, you
1: were successful in, um, trying to offer a different narrative on a lot of different things Mm -hmm. because even as you're talking about your relationship with your dad um early in the book I, i was taken by the fact that here you are you're afraid of your dad and you as a little girl you want to be able to intervene and keep peace between mom and dad and everything and yet in the morning you would wake up and your mom would give you the cue and signal you that you could go sit on your dad's lap and he would talk to you and i thought. Geez, of course you want to sit in your dad's lap and talk to him, right? Even, even in with the dynamics like that in your home, and I, I think that just sort of honors the, um, you know, the dialectic that that idea that you know, no, no one or no situation is all good or all bad, and that you know, you do bring up you have some lovely memories and stuff too. It's not like everything was all you know terrible, and um, and yet you. You did struggle. It also sort of speaks to another challenge in the book, which is, or the challenge for you, which was people having a hard time thinking you really were depressed because you also accomplished so much and you did have a, a, and later I think you attributed to um, sort of a hypomania or whatever, but but that you were very high
2: functioning. And so it was confusing for some people. Yes, and I can't even say that's gone away. I think that's just a challenge I have, um, and it's true with friends, with family, with doctors. Except my mom, because you know, my mom would look at me and be like, "You're not okay. <laughs> like, what's going on?" <laughs> um, she would just look at me and be like, "Okay, come on, right?" But everybody else, um, and especially with doctors, would be like, "But you, you can do this, and you can do that." Um, and I'm like, "Well, let's not wait until I can't <laughs> to get me some help." Um, but I did, you know, I had. I was able to do stuff, right? I was, I call myself kind of a high functioning depressive, like being able to do things doesn't mean I'm not sad, doesn't mean I'm okay. And so I had to learn to tell people I'm not okay. Um, But I think I also really harshly judged myself thinking, you know, I was wearing a mask and I didn't tell people that I wasn't okay. And as I went back and told the story, I was like, yes, I did. I did tell people and they didn't believe me, damn it. And so um, that was healing for me in the sense of thinking, oh, I I didn't say anything. And I'm like, yes, I did say something. I did tell people. Um, And just people sometimes dismissed it for all types of reasons, sometimes because we have an image in our heads of what depression looks like or what abuse looks like or what, you know, or we think you should be okay. Look at by all the markers. And I think it's because, in many medical industries, you're taught to think about symptoms. So if you don't have these symptoms, right, that are lined up, then you're okay. That's like, no, no, no. If I can share my interior life and tell you I'm not, then I'm, and I'm asking for help, then let's try and get me some help. Um, So it's pushed me in good ways to be able to articulate verbally how I feel. And because I also think that some of the high functioning is quote unquote high functioning comes from the hypomania and the way I experience hypomania and some of it's come from the fact that I didn't see that there were a whole bunch of other choices um there are times when you really can't get out of bed but you know when you have a kid you don't have all these choices about why well, you are going to get out of bed or you're not going to get out of bed like I don't know if there's anything worse for depression than like this you know, having a baby, right? (laughs) You know, they interrupt your sleep, you know, all the things you put in place to be well. Babies are like, we care nothing for that. Mm -hmm. You don't need to sleep. You don't need to eat regularly. You don't need to work out. You just need to hold me for like two years, right? (laughs) And so, um, you know, there's a level of which it's like, well, this is what has to be done. uh, No matter how I feel about it. And I think that's probably how my ancestors experienced. Well, no one's asking you, how you feel, you just have to share crop. You have to plant some crops. You have to take care of these nine children. You have to, you have to, until you absolutely can't. And I'd like to not get to the absolutely can't. place. Right,
1: right. And again, it makes me think of, you know, maybe other clergy or people you turn to who, after the fact you realize maybe they went through something like this. And the only option they had was to, you know, rise above it or, you know, suffer through it or whatever, because there weren't other options.
2: Right. And, you know, I mean, and it's, I am so glad that there's so much less stigma and there's so many more opportunities now than there were when I was growing up, let alone my parents, their parents, their parents. Um, you know, there's telehealth now, right? (laughs) And so you can, you know, there are websites where you can find therapists and, you know, there's more insurance and there's less of a stigma about having therapy. Um, So I think that I I see progress, I guess I would say. And I think people feel more empowered to talk about how their emotional well-being Mm -hmm. along with the rest of what's happening for them. And even when you use the word self-care, no one talked about self-care 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the way we talk about it now. And so I think that there's been a lot of progress made that will at least help us to address these issues that have always been there. Um, but with more opportunity and less, less stigma. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely the, the stigma has gone down. And I think there's been like with the, um, interest in yoga and even in meditation and the popularity of mindfulness, these things are all helping us think in a more expansive way about, about how to live life.
2: I mean, they don't just, I think, help us live life. I think they literally heal us, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as a religious person, we call them spiritual practices, (laughs) but um, you know, these, they're in, there are all these neurologists running around proving this with studies, right? That contemplation, meditation, yoga, deep breathing, certain religious rituals, which are things that religious people have said for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. right? That we're not just trying to get to God, but these heal us. These are what keep us okay. And that they, these are the things that literally can heal trauma, right? They really can begin to change our brain cells in new ways, right? And change our genes in new ways. Um, so that I find it exciting in many ways, because it's not just, oh, we carry this with us and here we are, um, and talk about it, but no, we actually are now beginning to access and understand that some of the things we've always accessed, um, as a people writ large are ways in which we've healed ourselves or tried to stay well and alive in the midst of difficult times.
1: Hmm. I wonder if listeners would be interested in like, what your ongoing practices are of either mm-hmm. self care or, um, how, you know, what you do mm-hmm. for yourself for your own. What what are your spiritual practices these days?
2: um I have a couple. I mean, uh, I think probably since I had a child, like when I just get fifteen minutes to have a cup of tea after everyone goes to bed. Like that is probably my best one. Is the house is quiet, everyone's asleep, no one needs anything. Me and my cup of tea is like my spiritual practice. Um, So that's one super easy one that feels great.
1: Those are the best because people will often say, you you know, I need self-care because I'm so busy all the time. And then you say, "Find more time. I love that. That's a nice one.
2: Right. I mean, I'd love to say, well, I have, you know, spa days every weekend. No, I don't. Right. Um, I think another one is endorphins are really helpful for me, both kind of medically and energetically. Um, which I always forget by the way, <laughs> but when I remember it, um, cycling is something that's become that's really a big thing for me. And it's always exciting to me because I didn't learn to ride a bike when I grew up. So I learned in my twenties. So the fact that I don't fall off the bike is a great sense of accomplishment to me. <laughs> so it doesn't take a whole lot for me to feel good about myself. Um, but just even biking and being outside and not having to have a to do list running through my mind for X number of minutes, um, has been a really big spiritual practice for me that might not look like your average spiritual practice um and then I do things that might be more traditionally a spiritual practice like before I go to bed I list three things I'm grateful for that day and sometimes it's hard to find three let's not lie mm-hmm. but I'm like well okay here we go here are three things um and you know and I pray of course but every day same time god know. um Every couple of days, at some point, that's it's probably more like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Did
1: you? Yeah. So I like that. That's a. That's a, that's so cute. So cycling, the cup of tea, mm-hmm. and prayer. Mm-hmm. What is your role, um, in your church or your parish or your ministry mm-hmm. these days?
2: Uh, well I've never been called a pastor that's a person who's in charge and leads everybody every week. Okay. Um I realized early in my internship that that was not something I wanted to do or would be very good at. Um although I'm very happy to support the people who do that. Okay. So um in some ways whenever people ask me to preach or to teach I, I will. Um whether it's a Bible study or sometimes I've over the years I've done women's days I've done um issues I've preached and taught around mental health, around uh, suicide awareness, around sexual and domestic violence. Um, So I did that. In fact, my book tour was in churches, actually. So when I went on tour, I said, well, that's where people are. So let's go to churches. And we brought the bookstores to the church, actually. That makes a lot of sense. And So I would preach and then talk about the book or (laughs) do something around that. Um, So I would say that's probably my role uh, in terms of what I do as as a religious leader at this point. Um, And I think I found more than I anticipated teaching to be a lot of ministry, you know, and the students I work with um, share with me what they're going on or mentoring them or helping them learn different things. That's a very big part of what I would consider my ministry now. That's that's interesting because um,
1: as a psychologist who provides therapy to people, I also find that, that providing therapy and helping people heal involves a lot of teaching. <laughs> so to the flip side of what you're saying, you know, teaching involves a lot of ministry, but I think sometimes when you're working with collaborating with someone on a on a healing or a growing process, there's teaching involved too. Yeah, yeah. And um I just want to go go back to say again that how I think it's really helpful to have another story for people too because again when I think the people sharing these stories help help break down the stigma and they make the the information out there so people can find it and educate themselves too I think it's really really important um Yeah. So thank you so much for taking time with us today. I'm I'm wondering if before we finish up though, if you, if there's anything in particular that you're working on now that you want to share or whether you've ever thought about writing another book or.
2: (laughs) Well, I am thinking about writing another book. So, um, I mean, a couple books, I have an academic book I should be working on. Um, And I have, um, you know, I've been thinking about writing more about uh, the generations of my mother to me, to my daughter. Nice. Um, and, you know, some of, a lot of things I've learned from my mom that I pass on, and the, she even, she learned, she talked about with my grandmother. So I've been thinking about writing that kind of a book, but then I'm still thinking about that.
1: Oh, so, and your, for your grandmother <laughs> is so palpable in the book, you know,
2: this, so that would be interesting. I, you know, and it's, like, it's nice, and I get to see that, I got to see that between my daughter and my mom as well, and so, you know, grandma this, grandma that, and I'm like, oh, this is great, you know, Um, so I've I've been thinking about writing a bit about that, but what I'm working on right now is, um, as I talk about in the book, I really struggle to find another faith, like another way of believing that could hold the complexity of living with great pain, of experiencing suffering, and still wanting to be faithful, and I ended up finding that in many ways through um, the research and getting a PhD <laughs> and um, in a theology that's called process theology, which really affirms um, change and loss and the strength we find in relationships with other beings and with the world. And so I've been teaching that for 15 plus years to primarily graduate students, but I think it's really cool. <laughs> and so right now I am, beginning to teach that to whoever wants to learn it uh, without having to wade through all the philosophy I had to wade through. Um, so I'm beginning to do some free webinars on that and offer some classes online. So for people who are interested, you can find information at processtheology101.com. Oh, okay, I'm going to write that down. Uh,
1: because we we also in the on the blog, the New Books Network blog, we'll put your personal website too, which has mm-hmm. some information. But Want to say that
2: one more time? Process Process theology 101com okay. And so that's exciting that I, for me to be able to say, well, maybe other people who've had similar experience want to know more about what is it that I discovered or what did I find or what faith did I get to replace? Right. You know, the all things happen for some reason, faith that didn't work for me. Right, right, right. Now that makes sense.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing that, that um, information with us. Go ahead. So thank you so much for for talking with us and telling us, uh, you know, some, some of the backstories behind the book. Um, people can, can go to your other website, which is just it's, I think it's monicaacoleman.com. Um and um, we'll look forward to seeing what
2: else you come up with next. And <laughs> thank you. And thank you for having me and for sharing Bipolar Faith with your listeners.